Welcome to episode four of the Train Insane or Remain the Same podcast. I'm your host, Justin Trangsrude. So this one, man, it's been a long time coming. You know, Garth Heckman is, uh, he's pretty much the whole reason that Train Insane or Remain the Same has kind of become my mantra. You know, he's not the first person to tell me that mantra. He didn't invent it or anything like that. But just coming up, watching him, watching the way he handled business, you know, it kind of led to me being the way I am. So, and this podcast was a long time coming, you know, I wanted to get him on from the start. We, uh, we got together last week. We had an amazing conversation. The, uh, the audio was jacked up. You know, I sent it to a friend of mine who works for Spotify and, uh, she wasn't even able to save it. So luckily I was able to get him to sit back down, have another talk. You know, we were able to come at it from a couple different angles. So it didn't sound rehearsed or anything like that. And to be honest, I think this conversation turned out better than our last conversation. This is a really good conversation. We get into the nitty-gritty of everything. So if you don't know Garth Heckman, I mean, he's he's been everywhere, you know. He's he's battled cancer 3 times. He's won all 3 times. Has a long, long history with powerlifting. He's been a gym owner. He's an entrepreneur. He's got a bunch of different businesses going. He's a pastor. You know, if you've ever lifted in the Apple Valley area, you've probably ran into Garth, whether it's going to be at LA Fitness or Experience Fitness. You know, you probably ran into him. My girlfriend works out at Experience Fitness. She runs into him all the time there. She calls him Hulk Jesus, and it's a fitting nickname for him. You know, he's one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. Personally, for me, um, I'm not exaggerating when I say Garth has had one of the biggest impacts on me out of anybody that I've ever met. So I think I've mentioned it on previous podcasts, but you know, I grew up not knowing my father. He wasn't involved in my life at all. And my stepfather, I mean, there's, there's no other way to describe that dude other than an absolute menace. So I didn't grow up having, you know, that loving father figure in my life. And then, uh, but I had an amazing mom. So, you know, made up for it. I'm not saying I was a victim by any means. My mom's amazing. Um, I wouldn't change anything about the way that I grew up, but when I met Ryan, Ryan is uh, Garth's son. We met in sixth grade, and we've been brothers ever since. And when uh, when Ryan brought me over to his house for the first time, and just meeting Garth, and you know, seeing what a real father is like, like that, it just changed my whole life. And from the start, from the jump, Garth welcomed me with open arms. You know, to this day, he calls me his son. We're family. And uh, he's been, you know, my biggest supporter throughout the years, you know, through all the ups and downs. I haven't been an easy guy to support, you know, especially in my younger 20s. I was a knucklehead. I was making dumb decisions, you know, but his support, his love, it never waved or it never wavered. You know, it's always been unconditional. He's always been there for me. And uh, he's battled a lot. You know, I still remember when he first got diagnosed with cancer in uh, the fall of 08, you know, me and Ryan. We were in college, we were in our freshman years at different schools, um, and I still remember that phone call, you know, it's, it was the first time in our friendship that I'd heard Ryan cry like that because his dad was diagnosed with cancer, and it's a, it's a heartbreaking feeling when, you know, one of the most important people in your life is going through something, and you don't know how to help him, and then I still, I remember, you know, going over shortly after that, you know, a couple, couple months, maybe a couple weeks after that, we all got together, we watched the UFC fight. And I just remember looking at Garth and being like, this dude has cancer? Like, how? Because he's a mountain of a man. He's a giant man. And it was it was just unbelievable to me. And then, you know, he beat that cancer. He opens up Southside Athletic. Of course, I'm training there from day one. At this point, I'm 21 years old. So I'm really 
early on in my formative years. And he's already made a huge impression on me with this first battle of cancer because he didn't miss a workout the whole time. And that was when I was getting into working out. You know, that's when those were my formative years in the gym. So you're seeing a dude who truly no excuses. Like he's just getting after it. He talks about it a lot in this podcast. You know, what kept him going to the gym as he's in chemotherapy. And uh, I mean, it was crazy to watch back then. But when you hear him break it down, it makes perfect sense. And then, so his second battle with cancer was obviously a lot worse. You know, it was liver cancer. And I'll never forget that call either. That was a hard call. And I remember going to the hospital with Ryan and visiting him. And it was just, it was a grim time because the doctors gave him two years if he's lucky to live. You know, the prognosis was not good at all. But Garth, he battled it like a champ. I mean, still in the gym every day. I talk about it on this podcast coming up here with him, but... It was just eye-opening because at this point, I'm in my MMA career. I think I'm grinding hard. I'm getting to the gym. I'm doing my strength and conditioning at uh, at 6 a.m. every morning. And when I get there, you know, Southside's up and running by now, Garcon and that. When I get there, he's already there. He's dripping sweat. He's squatting, you know, 500 pounds as he's going through chemotherapy. And it was, it was just inspiring as a kid because here I am thinking I'm grinding. And when you fight, it's easy to to feel uh, beaten down when you fight, because especially when you're training for a fight. When you're in training camp and you're cutting weight and you're training hard every day and you're bruised up and you're beat up, it's really easy to feel beaten down and to just be dragging yourself to the gym and be like, why am I even doing this? Like, I need rest. You know, it's easy to play those mental games on yourself. When you're going to the gym at 6 a.m. and you see a dude who's already been through his leg workout and he's battling cancer at the same time, you know, that snaps you out of that real quick. That motivates you real quick. So, you know, a lot of people, especially with the the bicep rupture I've been going through lately, and I didn't miss a workout the whole entire time, you know, people would be like, man, how are you doing this? And uh, how are you, why are you in here working out in a sling and this and that? And it's just like, come on, man, my formative years in the gym, I was literally watching a dude battle um, a pretty serious cancer you know, with a prognosis of two years to live, I was watching him battle that and still not miss a workout. So you think I'm gonna miss a workout just because my left arm is messed up and can't lift? Like, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna adapt. I'm gonna do, you know, I do a quad, hamstring, hip, and uh, core split. I'm gonna adapt and I'm gonna keep making it happen. You know, there's no excuses around here, and Garth is a huge part of that. So just the impact that he's had on me both in my personal life, kind of being that father figure, um, being a guy I can always turn to. Um, even when he was going through cancer, it would be wild because he would go in or I would go in, I'd see him. And keep in mind, you know, this is a man who's weighed 280 the whole time I've known him. Big dude, big giant dude. And now I'm seeing him and he's in the 100s, you know, he's 180. I think he got as low as like 170 at one point. So he looks rough, but I walk in, you know, I ask him, I'm like, Hey man, how you doing today? How you feeling? And he smiles, tells me he's doing good. And then he would always flip the conversation back on me. You know, he'd ask me about my fight, about my opponent coming up. He'd ask me about my relationships, about, you know, my work, well, you know, whatever. He would just always flip the conversation back on me. He would never let us dwell on what was going on with him, you know, and that, that was huge for me, you know, another, you know, I don't really, to this day, I've taken that because he never complained outside to anything, and that's the way I am with a lot of things too, you know, it drives my girlfriend crazy because I, I don't complain whenever, you know, I'm going through something, and, uh, and you know, I have, you know, people ask me how it's going, I'll just, I'll just smile and say, you know, it could be worse, I'm good, um, and it drives the people close to me crazy, but 
you know, just seeing the way Garth battled it with so much class and so much dignity. He never looked for pity. He never looked for people to feel sorry for him. You know, he never looked for people to even give him attention during it. You know, he always wanted to spin it on you and ask how you're doing. And just seeing that selflessness was was huge growing up. And the last week or so, as I've been brainstorming ways, you know, to come at him in this podcast and ask about different things, just thinking about those times again, it brought back a lot of old memories, a lot of old emotions. And just uh, gave me a reminder, you know, to try to be that kind of person in the gym. I mean, if you guys go to Southside Athletic, you've probably noticed the last, you know, two weeks or so, I usually, I don't talk to anybody in the gym. I usually throw my headphones on. I'm like, leave me the hell alone. I'm just here to work out, you know, especially if I'm not training anybody. If I'm just working out, you know, then I'm just all about me. But the last couple weeks, you know, thinking about what Garth was going through, thinking about his personality in the gym, you know, I'm not I'm not a total chatterbox in the gym by any means, but you know, I see people like last week saw a dude wearing an X-Men shirt, you know, told him I liked this shirt. We talked for five minutes about X-Men. Um, the other week I saw a dude do a 62 inch box jump. I was like, Hey man, that's a crazy jump. Nice work. You know, just little things like that, you know, thinking about Garth and the selflessness that he showed in his battle. It's kind of, kind of convinced me to be a little more open and a little more friendly at the gym. You know, the gym's definitely my place, my sanctuary to train hard kind of let everything out but it doesn't always need to be like that like you can still take time to uh you know just simply smile at someone dap someone up ask them about their workout you know just take a minute or two and just spread a little bit of that joy in the gym and that's what garth is definitely known for so this is a really powerful conversation it's uh it's a hard conversation you know there's points in here where you know, I'm getting emotional. He's getting emotional. Like it's some real stuff that we're talking about, but I'm hoping by getting this out to people and letting them hear his story and hear how no matter what he was going through, you know, the gym was that sanctuary for him, that safe haven for him, that sense of normalcy. A lot of people, you know, we all go through traumatic events, you know, whether it be cancer, a loved one dying, a breakup, you know, everybody goes through trauma. I feel like one of the biggest things we forget when we're going through trauma is still to try to take care of ourselves and maintain a sense of normalcy. And that can be huge. That can pay big dividends. So I'm hoping, you know, this podcast will reach some people that might be going through something right now. And it'll, it'll remind them that like, Hey man, this shit sucks right now. And a lot of the, a lot of things with trauma, the thing with trauma is a lot of it is out of our control. A lot of it is, you know, there's nothing we can really do to make it better. So we got to control what we can still control. And we got to maintain a sense of normalcy as we're still, as we're going through these life altering events. And I think this conversation could be a really good reminder to people and a good way to show them, you know, no matter what you're going through, just try to find something, whether it's the gym, whether it's writing, you know, whatever it is, whatever your outlet is, you that sense of normalcy you can maintain, try to maintain it as you're going through these traumatic events. So it's a really powerful conversation coming up here. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. You know, if you're not subscribed to the podcast already, make sure you subscribe to it. You know, I'm on Instagram and TikTok promoting the podcast all the time, training, saying to remain the same podcast. So just uh, link up on there and you'll always get new updates on the podcast and do me a favor, you know, listen to it, subscribe it, rate it, like it, and then send it to a friend, man. This is a powerful conversation. One of those that should be heard by a lot of people. So spread the message on this. And, um, yeah, enjoy the, enjoy the podcast guys. It's a really good one. All right. So we're coming here with the train insane or remain the same podcast. Take two with Garth Heckman. We recorded this last week, but 
the audio was all jacked up, so we're going to redo it. How are you doing today, guys? I'm doing good, man. Let's, let's say that last week was the, the warm-up. Yeah, Today's like a, trial, a real thing. Like a trial run. So, um, yeah, we're going to cover everything today. You know, your background in powerlifting, your come-up, obviously your, your battles with cancer, and just kind of kind of cover everything. But let's just let's start at the beginning. So, obviously, you came up powerlifting last week. There's something I meant to ask you that's always kind of... Um, your dog has always just kind of made me curious as you came up obviously in like the era where bodybuilding was kind of at its peak like Arnold right Arnold's super popular you're about the same age as Ronnie Coleman aren't you probably pretty close yeah 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 Yeah, so what made you lean to bodybuilding when there's no like there's no attention or not lean towards bodybuilding lean towards powerlifting instead of bodybuilding when there's no attention in the powerlifting industry at this point and it's all focused on bodybuilding that's it, you know what uh, I've never heard of it uh, asked that way, but it would make you wonder because when I was growing up, Arnold was really he was, I think in I was in eighth grade when he won his first Mr. Olympia, and he came out with his first book. I bought that, and I loved him. I loved I loved everything about weightlifting and bodybuilding. And when I started to work out in seventh grade, I got my first weight set. That was definitely what I was into. Yeah, aspiring to be, <clears throat> but then I met a gentleman in our church, Mike Morgan, who was one of the original powerlifters, and I remember his two nephews were good friends of mine, Gary and Greg Schneider, and they told me that their their uncle could bench like six hundred pounds, and to me, they they were lying. They had to be lying. No one benched six hundred. What, what pounds. were you benching at that point? <clears throat> when you oh, in it. seventh grade, I don't know. I think it's probably trying to get one thirty five. <laughs> I don't even know. But it, it sounded like, you know, everyone's friend tells a little bit of a fib. And then when their, their mom and dad backed it up and said, no, he's, he does what's called powerlifting, never heard of it before. Mm-hmm. Then I met him, and like I said, he started to train me. In fact, he brought me my first real weight set, cast iron weights, plates, bench, a bar, put them all in this old <coughs> crappy uh, Mercury. <laughs> I mean, it's probably a 1965 Mercury. Uh, was weighted down the back end. It looked like it was, you know, like a low rider with the front end just way up, but only because there was so much weight in the back. Brought it over, started teaching me how to train was f- for powerlifting. But when I was, uh, I don't know, freshman, right around eighth grade freshman, we went to this, uh, we went to this graveyard, and they had this old garage there. And Mike said, "Hey, I'm going to be training with some guys. You should come. I think you'd enjoy it." And so that was the day I walked in, and from behind I saw this guy who looked like a silverback gorilla. Just a giant and, man. Yeah, I mean, just he took his shirt off, and I literally thought, this guy, someone crossbred a gorilla with a man. And that was Bill Kazmaier. And <clears throat> super nice guy, but everyone looked up to him in that, that day. And I, I knew Mike was strong, but even you could tell Mike was like, you know, hey, this this is the guy. This is the dude. Don't remember much of that day other than all those guys were laughing, having fun, telling mm-hmm. dirty jokes as far as a, an eighth grader's concerned. <laughs> Powerlifting yeah. jokes, yeah. <clears throat> but uh, and that's when I saw him lift weights and, and saw looks on other men's faces who I thought were strong and were, but saw the looks on other men's faces when they saw what Bill could lift. And I thought, that's it. This is what I want to do. I mean... Uh, and then, again, Mike would say all the time, 
I'd bring him some new tweak in my routine or I'd ask him some question. Always came back to, back to this line. Do you want to be pretty or do you want to be strong? Yeah. And he, he gave no disrespect to bodybuilders because he said all the time what they have to do, the eating they have to maintain, the diet. But he said, but, you know, there's nothing wrong with being pretty if that's what you want. But if you want to be strong, you know, he'd many, he tore up many of my workouts and, <laughs> and rewrote them. And that's really when the bug bit me. That's when it yeah. was all powerlifting or nothing. So when you're, when you're in the beginning stages of powerlifting like that, what does the workout split look like? Are you still chasing PRs? Because the best time to PR is when you're new to lifting because your body's adapting so much and going through so much change. But you being young, you were still in high school at that point. What kind of splits were you doing with your workouts back then? Do you remember? Yeah, I do actually. Because the funny thing is, is I stayed on it for years because I felt like Mike knew more than anybody. And relatively so. Mm-hmm. Until 20 years ago, I stumbled on this dude called uh, Louis Simmons. Oh, everybody uh, knows Louis Simmons. Yes, yeah. and that's when my whole world went upside down. But anyway, uh, basically, I, I, I kind of fell in love with deadlift. Fell in love with deadlift right away, actually. And didn't realize till later, someone explained to me, because of my super long arms, my bench was always going to suffer. Mm-hmm. And my deadlift was always going to be great. And my squat was going to be according to how much hard work I put in. Right. So we literally, I'll never forget, Mike started out with a warm-up. Then he wrote out a, a perfect pyramid, 12, 10, 8, 6, 4, 2, 1, on your major lift. And then on the next workout, you do almost like the cube method if you're, if you're used to it, but it was more of a 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't speed and power. It was just high reps to as much as you could power through, and then your, ne- your next workout you know, for whatever it was, bench, uh, squat, or dead, would then be that really power, five, four, three, two, one. Yeah. With accessory work. And it worked for a long time. And I probably always felt like I was gaining strength only because I'm, I'm getting thicker and I'm getting older. You know, and yeah. in eighth grade, or probably freshman when I started really powerlifting, it was gains every six months just because, you know, cause hormones are it. kicking in, puberty's, yeah. you know, over time and I'm eating like a horse and so yeah <clears throat> how much did you weigh like when you first started powerlifting as a freshman I bet I weigh I bet I weighed around 185 and you probably got up to 200 pretty quick pretty quick I remember stagnating one of the things that worked against, worked against me during the summer months is I still tried to work out but I loved water skiing water skied I mean literally seven eight months out of the year and so, you know, that's a high volume calorie burn. Yeah. And so I try to work out in the morning and then water ski later in the day. And that really worked against me during the summer because I could literally eat a, a couple packs of double stuffed Oreos and a 24 pack of Mountain Dew every day. But you're in the water nonstop. Yeah, you're just burning calories <clears throat> yeah. nonstop. So you'd go to work out and you'd look in the mirror and you looked a little more defined. But I definitely wasn't getting any stronger. Right. So I, I remember... As a junior in high school, my goal was to bench 225. And just thinking, if I can do that, if I can do that. And Todd Ebert, if he's ever listening to this, he was my age, and he was benching 315 as a junior. And I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, I can't even imagine. So I think I hit 205 my junior year, if I remember correctly. And my senior year, then I was like, okay, I got to get, you know, the two-plate club. Yeah. And I remember hitting 225. 
but what really started to take off for me then was my deadlift and my my squat so bench never took a back burner i just started to realize that's probably not going to be my cake you know yeah it's going to be your weak point out of those three yeah just because of your build because you do have a taller i mean you're not lanky by any means but if you didn't work out you'd be lanky you'd be a tall long arm type dude yeah my arms are are they're ape arms so yeah yeah <clears throat> Uh, so when, what age were you when you did like your first actual powerlifting meet? I was, so I'd been married. We got married at 19. It was right after Ryan was born. So it's probably when I was 26, right around there. And what took you so long? Cause you started powerlifting when you were 15, 16. What took you so long to actually make the decision to go do a competition? Well, for a long time, I didn't really know you had meets other than when you just went to the gym and competed against everybody who was in the gym. So, yeah, like personal meets. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I really didn't know they existed. Um, I went to quite a few with Mike, you know, Mike Morgan. But for some reason in your head, you're thinking, well, those are professionals. Yeah. You know, they're all men. I'm, I'm 18, 19. At 19, I got married. I was going to Bible college, traveling for school. And so finally, when we moved to Bat we moved back to Madison in '89, and that's when training got real consistent. Uh, one of my friends had a, a house club there, still has it. Started going in every day and really kind of dialing in. Okay, this is what I want to do. And then I stumbled on, probably in 1989, right around there, uh, Powerlifting Magazine, mm. and that really helped a ton. It's a horribly formatted magazine. It's no longer <laughs> around. It was. Tons of articles, very few pictures, but you'd find these articles and these interviews with people who would say things that you'd go, well, I didn't know that, you know, and, and, and that's when I first was introduced to who Louis Simmons was. Mm. So at 25, 26, I thought, okay, there was a bench press competition in YMCA, and I told my wife I had a youth event that day, and I didn't, <laughs> but I just didn't think she'd want me to go do it, and I snuck up to the YMCA, and uh, I, I know we talked about this last time we talked, but it's just still so funny to me. I'm looking at all the numbers everyone's doing for my age and my weight, and I'm thinking, I'm going to destroy people. <laughs> I didn't realize how strong I am. I'm going to go down there. People are going to be in awe. They're going to just be like, who is this guy? Get there, pay my dues, walk up to the table. i got to sign forms to be a part of whatever federation it was. Yeah. Go through the weigh-ins, and then they go with your opening numbers. And I remember this, like a mom sitting at the table back then. She's probably my age now, but, and she's like, what are your opening, what are your opening numbers? And so for squat, I was like, oh, it's going to be like 380. And she goes, oh, kilos or pounds. And when she <laughs> said that, I realized, wait a second, I bet I've been reading everyone's numbers as kilos. And I thought they were pounds. And I said, pounds. And she said, oh, okay. Like, no big deal, wrote it down. And, and then when I saw what people were really doing, and actually, I didn't squat. That was for bench. But um, but then when I saw people my age and relatively my size yeah, doing 100 pounds plus more than me, uh, that was kind of like, okay, am I really going to pursue this or am I going to give up? You know, yeah. am I just going to become a weekend warrior? But I'm just stubborn. And, you know, when I really want something, I go after it. So I said, okay, I really got to figure this out. So that's when I really kind of started to study it more than anything. Yeah. So like in the MMA world, obviously iron sharpens iron. So if I want to be a better fighter, I have to train with better fighters. When you realized when you went to this meet and you saw these dudes putting up a hundred plus pounds as you, was it that same mentality where you're like, can I train with, can I get a workout in with you guys? Can I pick your brain a little bit? Or is it a little more isolated 
in the powerlifting world? Like, how did you go about getting better? Right. Probably the biggest thing that helped right at that time, right around 1993-ish, I, I really started to... So I got real hungry. I wanted to, you know, Powerlifting Magazine was out. And every now and then in the bodybuilding magazine, there'd be something on, you know, how to improve your bench or squat or something. But this thing came out. I think some of your listeners have probably heard of it. But it was called the Internet. <laughs> and uh, and I'll never forget one of the guys at my church, John Ruck, pulled me into his office one night and said, hey, let me show you something. And he goes, I'm... I'm I'm now on the internet. He's explaining to me what it was. I didn't. I wasn't really wowed. Yeah. At first, and he said uh, he typed in Ford vehicles, and all these Ford vehicles pulled up, and he was showing me different articles and some were for sale and all this stuff. And I, on a whim, said, "Hey, uh, type in powerlifting," and I'll never forget. <laughs> I'll never forget. I think. Like thirteen things pulled up. Now do that today in the in the modern internet. It'd be thirteen thousand, you know, yeah. in the first week. But thirteen things pulled up, and then all of a sudden, it's like, wait a second, this magical machine has information <laughs> on powerlifting. And we clicked on a couple things, and there was some stuff about working out and nutrition. So then, then I really started to try to do my homework and learn that. And you did have to have some pretty crazy people to work out with. Yeah, because um, you need you, spotters. Yeah, and and even if you think you're pretty motivated, you can push to insanity for yourself, but you still so, need someone to push you past insanity. Sure. And so, <clears throat> right out of high school, I had two of my friends. We all three trained together. Trained together. We called ourselves the Psycho Triplets because we literally would push each other. Like if you got to rep eight and you had to do ten and you didn't think you could do it, we knew that in the middle of that rep someone was going to give you a titty twister <laughs> and you were going to be so pissed and literally come home with black and blue nipples and you'd be like, okay, I'm doing it to this guy and I'm next. You better, better believe I'm getting all 10 on my ribs because he's going to pay me back big time. And so one of those dudes, Donnie, uh, he and I later, when I came back to Madison, we started to train together again and we pushed each other and, and just, uh, you know, when you find someone crazy, hook up with them for a while training and so I've always definitely been self-motivated, but I've also had some great training partners. Yeah. I mean, self-motivation gets you far. Self-motivation gets you up in the morning, gets you to the gym, but good training partners will take you kind of over the top, yeah. like you mentioned. Um, so with, uh, with your power lift, how many, how many meets did you end up doing, you know, once you got into it and once you really got motivated, or not motivated, but really got, like your first one was so humbling. How, how soon after did you get into another one? Right. So, funny thing is, I kind of took my lashing on that first meet, and I, I stuck with just bench only for a while, mm -hmm. and did just local meets, YMCA, um, Ernie's Gym, things like that, and didn't, you're kind of a little scared to go back to, like this was in Milwaukee at the YMCA, and there's a lot of people there. Right. A little scary to go back and say, okay, I'm going to go up against all these guys again where I thought I got pounds and kilos messed up. You know, and <laughs> like come back and say, hey, you know, I'm taking you on. So I stayed real local. And then when I was in Chicago, I met a dude by the name of Mike Kirschbaum, who was another pastor. And I did a couple meets there. And then he invited me to this camp. And at the camp, and I was going there to speak, but also at the camp, um, it was 
like a camp where anybody could anybody could uh, rent it out for whatever. Sure. So at the same time I was there, they had a strongman competition. And I just thought, well, I'm a powerlifter. I should be able to do pretty good. I actually did okay. I came in second at the end because there was a, a truck pull. And the guy that beat me won the ESPN Fireman Olympics, which I didn't even know there was such a thing. I don't even thing. know what that is. <laughs> yeah, uh, you do all these fireman things. But he had cardio for days. Mm. So we both started out pretty even. I pulled ahead shortly, and then my cardio just gassed. And he beat me. And that was the one event where we were tied going into it. But that's I met a couple other dudes who said, you should start doing strongman as well. Long story short, I... Re- I Thought about it for I thought about it for maybe an hour, yeah. <laughs> not real long, and thought no 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 I, I really want to stay stay in the powerlifting, so that's when I started to look around. I did probably again still bench only when I lived in Madison, mm-hmm. and then when I moved here in Minnesota in '99, that's when I did one with oh the club Northwest Club. We did a, just kind of a local one, and then. And I think that was my first full bench dead squat. Mm. And then did, uh, then started training with uh, Deb and Greg Damaga, who again taught me a ton of stuff. Uh, Greg was like a walking encyclopedia of powerlifting. And then that's when I kind of said, okay, all on, all in, you know, yeah. let's do whatever it takes. And was getting ready for my very first meet. And then I found, I mean, very first full meet against the big dogs nothing yeah. not none of this local stuff but a meet where everyone's coming in and then that's when i got cancer okay and so you want water? oh i'm good thank you though and so hey everybody that's my wife she wanted to be on the <laughs> podcast um <clears throat> you're good and so that's that's when uh, after cancer that's when i thought you know kind of time is limited so let's let's compete against you know, the Marshall Johnsons of the world. And, I remember you know, him. That dude was a giant. Yeah, and people like that. And so um, met some great people through a lot of those meets. But uh, it's just, you know, you just kind of, when you're in the fighting scene, you'll fight in any federation that will have you in a sense, you know. True. So you just go wherever you can. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is a good transition now. So you got you were first diagnosed, if I remember right, fall of 2008, right? Uh, 2009. No, 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 2000, hold on. I thought me and Ryan were freshmen in college. I, that was, uh, was it 2008? 2008, okay, yeah. 2008. Yeah, so diagnosed fall 2008. What were, like, the warning signs? Like, what, because, I mean, obviously I've known you pretty much my whole life. Like, outside looking in, you would have never guessed because you were strong as an ox. Like, you were still putting up massive weight in the gym. What were, like, the warning signs that made you want to go get checked out by the doctor i i found it at a point where again as a powerlifter eat 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 you know i i would compete at 275 i tried to get at 285 you know the night before and then hitting a sauna for 10 you know 10 pounds and weigh in but there was one spring i just wasn't able to gain weight mm. and i had had hernia surgery uh the year before and i thought I don't know how you think this, but I thought, well, maybe they messed something up with my digestion. <laughs> how you could do that with hernia surgery, that would yeah. be the, wouldn't every woman want that surgery? <laughs> and so that spring, I just started to eat, like, nonstop. And then there was a point where 
I was, I would go to Cub and I'd get a big baggie of Swedish fish, and I, and literally like five pounds. And along with all my meals, I would eat Swedish fish all day long. Just to pack calories. Yeah, on. just pack calories on, and still couldn't gain weight. Started to get more fatigued, more tired. Went in for a physical. Doctor gave me a physical. Said you're great. Yeah, you know, blood pressure's low. Everything's awesome. Uh, he didn't do a, an extensive blood test. But he said, you're low on iron. That's why you feel, you know, wiped out and tired. You're low on iron. Okay. And it was literally just about a week later, I met a girl at the gym, a woman my age. Her name was Kim. And I was telling her everything, you know, not feeling good, losing weight. But I got a physical. Yeah. And he says, I'm doing great. And I could tell she was kind of scared. And she said, have you seen a gastrointestinal doctor yet? And I said, no. She said, please go see one. I didn't even start my workout that day, and just by the fear in, in her eyes, I just came home and I jumped online and found the number of a, a gastro doctor in my insurance company and called them right then and there. The woman who took the phone call said, you need to come in tomorrow. Mm. And I was like, well, this is, they usually don't do that, you know? Yeah, that can't be good. Yeah, so went in the very next day, and he said, I think you either have sprue or spree or something, uh, diverticulitis. I'm sure I'm killing that name. That's what Brock Lesnar had, yeah. Yeah, or you have cancer. And I was like, well, I know I don't have cancer. I mean, right. of course. So uh, they did a colonoscopy a couple of days later and found a tumor, you know, a little bigger than a baseball and said, well, colon cancer stage three. Lucky you. So. Mm. And when you first hear those words, you have cancer, what's that like? Is that just like getting hit like the biggest sucker punch in the world like a huge just shot you don't see coming it it is it is a hundred percent and you think it's the worst news possible a hundred percent and you you know you, you're looking at 50-50 uh, whether you're going to be around but <clears throat> I was just kind of naive and thought you know I'm gonna I'm gonna beat this and it had it definitely had its challenges Everything, you know, with all the chemo and the toll that takes on your body. But to be told, you know, after you've had colon cancer, it spreads to your lymph system. They remove 100 of your lymph nodes, and they're malignant with cancer. And then you get through all that, and then they, you know, a year and a half later say it's back. That was that, that was, was the, the one punch. that came out of nowhere. That was, like, knocked the wind out of me. Mm. So, and they, they say liver cancer, and they point to the calendar and pick a date and that's how long they say you have to live that's the one that really makes you suck wind sure um when you first got diagnosed back in 2008 what was like the first thing that was going through your mind were you already spent because like i this doesn't relate at all but like when i ruptured my bicep recently it maybe took five minutes of me panicking about it before I was spinning my wheels and coming up like with a rehab plan without even knowing what the doctor's course of action was going to be. Was it similar for you with cancer? Because I know how you're wired. You're immediately probably thinking, all right, this is how I'm going to beat this. This is what I'm going to do. Like, were you just going into that mode right away? Yeah, I did. In fact, I'd say I panicked a little, but I didn't understand how bad it was. You know, the first diagnosis, I mean, that day, I didn't, uh, my oncologist, who I met with the next week, said, "Don't look on the internet." You know, he said, "Don't, mm. don't look for your percentages and your stats and whatever." 
And I, re I really honestly did. I think everybody else in my family did. I would have. Yeah. Uh, but I did look at ways to uh, combat it. I went on the Gerson diet immediately. We did chemo, did a bunch of um, all natural homeopathic medicines and vitamins, kind of threw the whole kitchen sink at it, you know, yeah. did whatever, whatever I could. But I always kind of felt like, okay, I th I'm going to get through this. I'm going to get through this. Uh, and I don't think I ever really felt like I'm going to die after the first 24 hour shock. Yeah. But here's what happens during that time. I'm in a clinic uh, at MOPA here in, in Burnsville. I'm there almost 10 and a half months uh, around people who are going through chemo. And eight of those months, I'm sitting in that room uh, two, three days at a time with people who have liver cancer, colon, lung, you name it. But a lot of those people had liver cancer. And, hey, you know, like one of the girls I got close to, hey, where's Deanna? She had liver cancer. Deanna didn't make it. Mm. And you start seeing the people with liver cancer didn't make it. So the second time I heard liver cancer and the doctor gives you a timeline, that's when that really, you go, okay, I'm going to fight it. But, but you know, I don't, I don't know. You know, I'm going to fight it, but I don't know. Who knows? Right. Kind of like if you go into a fight and you know the dude's like undefeated, right. eighteen and zero, and you're like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give it my best, but I don't, right. I don't know what's gonna happen right. here. Um, so, your son Ryan, he actually he reminded me of a really, really cool story, and I went back and I read his article. Um, for anybody listening out here, Ryan works for the Windy City blog. They cover you know the Chicago Bears, the Chicago Bulls, but he does a really good job of mixing like what you went through into uh, into his writing. And it was the piece he wrote about how sports were such a good distraction for you. Like yeah. he said, it's, I have a very similar story. I'll tell it after I get your side of this. But he said to this day, you love Jay Cutler because midway through your first cancer diagnosis, that's when the Bears traded for Jay Cutler. And it was just like a beacon of hope for you. So is that something you really kind of held on to was using sports and oh. working out and everything as a good distraction, a sense of normalcy in life? Yeah. In fact... Uh, I, I would say, you know, my faith, my relationship with Jesus, my family were the two big pillars. Working out was just part of who I was. Yep. But you know, I was always fighting cancer through football season. Mm -hmm. You know, um, well, you know, up until February and then March, April, May, I was chemo, you know, without football, made it hard. But chemo was always for me Monday, Tuesdays and Wednesdays. So I'd go on Monday, I'd sit there all day, and then I'd leave with a pump hooked up. Mm. And then I'd go back in on Wednesday afternoon, sit there for a few more hours, and then they'd unhook me. <clears throat> so it always worked perfectly because I have football on Sunday to forget about tomorrow, Monday. i got to get hooked up. Is the first day the worst day with chemo? No, it's the last day. The last day, last the day. Wednesday? Yeah. Okay. So, so by Sunday, you're actually feeling probably your best. Yeah, you, okay. you actually feel halfway decent. Okay. And so you're really dreading going in the next day because you're like, man, I'm just starting to feel better. Right. So Sunday took my mind off it. Monday, I go in, I get hooked up, and it's okay because literally I'm like, well, tonight I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch Monday Night Football. Right. Uh, Tuesday, I just kind of grind through it. And Wednesday was kind of a, kind of a, um, a mental release because you're like, just get this freaking pump off my body because it's plugged into your chest through a port it's hanging on your waist and by the time you're done wednesday 
you're toast. Mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're a vegetable. You can barely keep your eyes open. You're vomiting, all that stuff. But you're going like, hey, tomorrow, you know, I can make it through the day, and we got Thursday night football. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. And literally, you kind of live from, from game to game to game. And so even on Saturday then, when there was college football, that was so much of a respite for me to go, okay, yeah. I can just lose myself. Um, I get get caught up in teams I've never even liked before, but you know they're they're playing and I get to see their games. So it was a huge part of the the mental break, mental healing. So yeah, I mean that's what sports are great for. Um, for me, I mean you mentioned Jay Cutler as that player for you. For me, it was Khalil Mack. Uh, my girlfriend, I used to joke with her, I have to name my firstborn Khalil. And she was like, we're definitely not naming our kid Khalil. But uh, I lost my grandma to cancer, and uh, it was the day of her funeral, so it was just a real dark day. And we, we, we had her funeral here, but then she's buried in South Dakota. So we had to go drive up to South Dakota to bury her alongside my grandpa. And that was the same day that Khalil Mack got traded there. So it was your son, Ryan, sent me the text, all caps, right. with like five exclamation points. We got Mack! And that was the first time maybe in like a week that I had even smiled or laughed or anything. Right. So just that distraction of sports, man, it's, it's so deep what it does for people, especially, you know, going through what you're going through. And then it ties into fitness too, because you mentioned when we talked last week that part of the reason you still worked out was a sense of normalcy, just keeping a regular schedule. Right. Like they said, how important that was during chemo, but I'm assuming it was also just a great distraction for you just to a chance to forget for, I mean, you probably never forgot what you're going through, but I'm sure sometimes you could lose yourself in the sets or just have something else to focus on besides the cancer. Very, very true. I would agree with that 100%. But probably one of the biggest things that anyone who's gone through this will say amen, and you're right. When you realize how little control you have over your life, the things you can control, you go overboard on. Yeah. So, I mean, there were days I'd get up and I'd go to the gym knowing I'm not really going to work out. Like, I really physically can't. Yeah, I can grab some 10, 15-pound dumbbells and maybe do some box squats holding those, maybe do some curls, maybe do some bench press, um, especially those last few months. But I, but I get to control that. I get to go yeah. and say what I'm going to do with my time during this day. And I always go to the gym and I always work out. So you really hold on to what you can control yep. because you realize things like your life and your breath and your weight and your appetite and all that yeah. you don't have a lot of control over. So um, so that first, the first cancer, not the liver cancer, but the colon cancer, how much weight did you lose on that? A uh, hundred pounds, hundred and I was at two, uh, probably 280 and I went down to about 180, 183, mm. so almost a hundred pounds. And was that a pretty rapid drop too? It was, well, see, what happened there that really scared the doctors was, so I had my surgery to remove the tumor and uh, six feet of my colon. So my digestive system is already trying to figure out what's going on. So there's going to be some issues there. But then about, I'm supposed to heal a month and then they're going to start doing chemo. Mm -hmm. Well, two weeks after my surgery, I was getting really sick over a weekend. And so on a particular Sunday, I actually preached that Sunday. And I was I could just tell in the middle of my sermon, I've got this raging fever. And I asked my dad, who's at, who was at service that day, I said, I'm going to have my father come up and close in prayer. Mm -hmm. 
And I literally walked out the door, got my car, and drove home and climbed into bed. I remember that. And yeah, and my wife came and took my temperature, and it was like 102 or something sky high. Mm. So she called the doctor, and they're like, get him in here now. And by the time they got me in, I was delirious. I was yelling how I wanted a ladder. <laughs> and so everyone's like, somebody better get this dude a ladder. So I lost a, a bunch of weight with that because I was in the hospital for a week with C. diff. which oh, is a, An infection? Yeah, yeah, terrible infection. In fact, a lot of people died just from that. Mm. So, okay, so now I lose weight on that. I'm probably at that point down to 240. And then I, I got to take two more weeks and rest up. And you kind of lose your appetite during that time. So then sure. I went from that right into chemo. And with the chemo, then it came up pretty fast. And yeah. partially, I didn't start using, uh, you know, I was really against medical marijuana or marijuana just because I'm an old fart and I had my <laughs> own preconceived ideas. But uh, probably around end of January, I, I, had, uh, a fr- I had a family member make me some marijuana uh, Reese's peanut butter cups. Hmm. My weight got down, like I said, to about 180. And I'll never forget, we're sitting right here at this table, and my wife's begging me to go down and eat one. And I was feeling guilty, like, you know, I don't do drugs, I don't need drugs. <laughs> but I'm throwing everything up that I eat. Now is making everything possible. Else this is Kim Heckman, the guest, <laughs> the guest uh, podcast. guest. So I go downstairs, I eat one of these Reese's peanut butter cups. And literally, the JT, get it. I'm like in my basement by myself, but I'm looking around making sure no one can see me because I felt so guilty, you know. <laughs> and I eat it, and literally like 45 minutes later, I felt way better. My, I had an appetite. I wasn't nauseous. So then I was able to keep my weight at around 185, 190. Mm. And I know that wasn't much, but I, I wasn't still losing weight. Sure. So that made a huge difference. And then when I went in, when I found out I had liver cancer, I right away started with, um, when I started chemo, having, you know, different types of marijuana, uh, blueberry muffins and chocolates and things like that. Different ways to consume. So my weight only got down to about 220 for that, Mm. which was actually pretty good compared to, you know, that's only about 70 pounds compared to 100. Sure. I mean, it's kind of amazing what medical marijuana can do. I mean, I just had my first experience with it when I tore my bicep because I'm 100% against any type of narcotics or pain medication yeah. so i was like i'm not taking any of them right. and the doctors are looking at me they're like you're getting surgery we're drilling into your arm you're gonna need to take right. them i was like i'm not taking a single one and i got some edibles because i can deal with pain it's just the discomfort i couldn't really deal with and it helped like i made it all the way through without taking a single narcotic just relying on the edibles to kind of it just relaxes you and i think it yeah. helps you heal a little bit too and you know what it is it's not even so like you said it's not so much the pain it's that the pain gets in the way of sleeping, the yes. pain gets away of your appetite, the pain gets away. So you go, yeah, I can muscle through the pain, but it's not going to help me be hungry. It's not going to help me sleep, it's, you know, things like that. So Sure. Um, so it probably became a pretty regular part of your treatment going on there. Um, you mentioned earlier you took up a different kind of diet as soon as you got um, diagnosed. What, what does that diet look like? What, like? Are you just trying to cut down inflammatory foods? Well, so there's a lot of uh, science this is a hot topic. A lot of people argue one way or the other. Sure. But the Gerson diet was uh, by Dr. Gerson, who said if your body is in a certain uh, pH state, that cancer can't grow. Mm. And so greens basically just 
grains, vegetables, seaweed, kale, uh, broccoli. All the anything. gross stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, that if you just did that completely, that your body would not be able to, cancer would not be able to grow. Mm. So immediately, my mom and dad, you know, went out and bought me this, like, literally $2,000 blender because what it does is it masticates the vegetables it doesn't just you know purate them mm -hmm. and i started drinking the only good juice i could have out of out of it was uh, carrot juice because that was sweet mm. everything else tastes like turd <laughs> but you're on chemo so everything kind of tastes like turd anyway so right. your mouth already tastes like battery acid and infection and burnt coffee so you know that then okay I'll drink turd sure. so but literally I got so weak that I actually had a friend of mine he and his wife had this huge garden massive garden and they grew all of that and so they wanted to just you know do something for Kim and I so they would take all of those out of their own garden and they would juice for me every day and he'd, he'd bring it by the house and huh? so I just pounded that and I yeah. think that that definitely helped okay yeah. Yeah. Um, we talked about it last week, but we can touch on it again. So obviously when you got diagnosed, you were in lower 40s, right? Yeah. Yeah. 42-ish, I think yeah. you said. Yeah. yeah. 42, 43. So 42, you're super fit. Like you're still the biggest dad I've ever seen. Like when we were kids, Ryan was kind of what you were talking about when the guy was like, my cousin bench press 600 pounds. Ryan used to be in school, he used to be like, my dad squats 500 pounds. And we'd be like, sure he does. <laughs> and then we'd see you and be like, okay, yeah, he does. <laughs> but um, did you... Were you kind of looking like how like how did I catch this like I've dedicated my my physical like my life to physical fit not your whole life but you know what I mean right. like yeah. your physical life to fitness and staying in shape and taking care of your body were you feeling like betrayed by your body at all You know I don't know that I would have put it in those words more as I just felt shocked cuz like you said I'm the guy who was like, oh, bird food is good for you? I'll eat bird food then, you know, because <laughs> um, I was always trying something, trying to eat something healthy. Yeah. Um, not that I didn't have my bowl of ice cream or, you know, I still love ice cold Coke, though I hardly ever drink them. But, yeah, I mean, as far as working out, I was always, my carbs, my, tro my protein, my fats, you know, all, it was dialed in. So when I got cancer, I was shocked. I didn't feel betrayed. But I also understand from a faith perspective we live in a sinful world, sure. and sickness and disease doesn't choose only bad people. Mm. You know, it, it, Psalms, I think 63 says, it rains on the just and on the unjust. Good things are going to happen to us, bad things are going to happen to us. It has no, it doesn't matter, you know, how good we lived or how bad we lived, it's just going to happen. You're going to be quiet or you're going to go downstairs. I'm talking <laughs> to my wife. No, I'm talking <laughs> to my dog. Um, so, you, when it happens, you go, okay, this is, this is a lot that I'm dealt, and we're just going to deal with it. There's no time to blame anybody, and it doesn't sure. help if you do. So, did they ever? Did they ever tell you what they thought might have caused it? Did you kind of do your own research into what could have potentially caused it, or was it just well? Here's a like good a lesson, luck boys and girls. I have a good lesson for everybody. That first interview with my oncologist. Do you have any cancer in your family? No. Grandmas, grandpas? No, none at all. Oh, okay. So they're surprised. So I go home and I'm talking to my parents, and my mom's like, "What?" Your grandpa had colon cancer. I'm like, what? Nobody, you know, nobody told me. Well, they had already started to formulate a plan. And then when I went back and told my oncologist, no, my grandpa had colon cancer. And he's like, oh, okay, well, what did they do? 
they cut it out of it. They they cut out his uh, part of his pe- uh, colon. They didn't have chemo back then, mm. and they just sewed him up and gave him some antibiotics, and that was it. Mm. So then they kind of take that history, and they they then chose me to be on some experimental drugs with my chemo. So, you know, you kind of say, well, I wouldn't have expected it, but then it didn't catch my oncologist off guard. Sure. And in a weird way, my grandpa, my mom's father, and I look the same, act the same, same sense of humor. I could have, could have kind of see it coming down the pipe, but if I would have, you know, yeah. stopped and thought about it or knew about it. So, so when you, so you, uh, you got diagnosed in the fall of '08. When did they, did they ever say you were all clear from it, or when did you start feeling normal after that? Before you got diagnosed again, because there was that year and a half period before you got diagnosed again. Yeah. When did you start feeling normal again? I, I probably. Well, okay, so I'll separate the answer. My last chemo was in June, second week of June. And I probably started to feel normal in October as far as my energy level. Mm-hmm. I was still, um, chemo's in your body for a while. You have to be careful. Uh, you Like during chemo, I can't kiss my wife with, with slobber. I can't make love to my wife. They can't swap any body fluid. Mm-hmm. When you're done with chemo, you got to wait two weeks. Two longest weeks of my <laughs> life. But anyway, um, so you kind of think, well, in two weeks, then I'm really going to start to feel better because I have to wait two weeks before I'm going to jump my wife. No, you don't feel good at all. I mean, and then you start to go, am I ever going to feel better? And then July, like, ah, kind of not really. August, a little bit. So by about mid-October, I was like, okay, if I don't push myself, I feel pretty good. Mm-hmm. Strength-wise, still pretty sucky, you know. Though my deadlift was crazy as it was, my deadlift was still pretty good. Again, my long, stinking arms. But it was by January when I started writing out my goals for that year mm. that I felt like, okay, I, I feel like I got my foundation back to which I can build on. And that's really when I felt, other than still being kind of weak in the gym, I felt like mentally, uh, emotionally, physically, energy-wise, I'm all there. Though... Mentally, you still suffer from chemo brain. You know, got a bag of squirrels sure. up there for a while, but still do. But Had you put the weight back on at that point, too? I got pretty close. I, the one nice thing, you know, having the background that I had, I knew I didn't want to just put weight on to put weight on. Mm-hmm. So you, you lose your taste bud. Uh, you lose your, your cravings for certain things. And sweets were one that I still, even today, I'm not a big sweet eater. So there wasn't a lot of just needless calories. Mm-hmm. I tried to stick to, honestly, a lot of fish and a lot of steak mm. and tried to you know, put the weight on semi-healthy. And then by January, I was like, okay, let's eat everything. Yeah. You know, I, fi- I finally feel like I'm ready to go. And, and I've never been one to gain weight. Uh, over 285, 290, my body just refuses. doesn't matter how much I eat. So Sure. Uh, and by this point... Had you had you opened Southside yet? At yeah, this point? yeah, because I was diagnosed with liver cancer um, our first year of Southside. Yeah, because you, if I remember right, you guys opened Southside. I want to say the fall of like '09. Yeah, right say. around there. Yeah, um, what was going through your head when you decided? Because you had just fought cancer, and now you're gonna fight to open up a gym. Because opening up a gym, I mean, it is a fight. It's a lot harder than people think. When people ask me, "When are you gonna open your own gym?" I'm like, "Never. I don't want those headaches. Are you crazy?" Right. Um, so what made you decide like? I'm going to go open a gym now. Right. 
You know, a big part of it was when I was diagnosed with cancer, you have to start thinking about if I die, how's my wife going to be supported? You know, what am I really leaving for my boys other than 10,000 books and a ton of guns and some guitars, <laughs> which I would take. But yeah. anyway, um, and, and so with that in mind, and then realizing more than anything with liver cancer, you never know when your number's up. And I've never been shy at trying new things, but I always felt like I have to do one thing at a time. And after liver cancer, I was like, no, nah, I'm going to do everything I want to do. I just, I'll just make time for things. So I thought I've always wanted to open a gym. Uh, a friend of mine in Madison was clo was wasn't clothing was updating all of his equipment like mm -hmm. at two million dollars. He owns quite a few gyms and one of them is the largest in the Midwest. And so he really blessed me with some equipment to help me get my foot in the door and get started. And just didn't look back. Then I I found someone who wanted to, Armando who you yeah. knew. I found someone who wanted to partner with me and that helped to have somebody else help with that burden. But I just like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna wait anymore, you know. Yeah. And I never had been one, but there are all a ton of things I want to do, and I just thought, well, I'm just start doing them all. I'll just make time for all of them. And if something doesn't work out, I'll let it go. And if something does, I'll focus more on that. Sure. So you had you'd been you know cancer free or feeling relatively normal for close to a year. What made you go back in to get checked when you found out you had liver cancer? Like, what were the warning signs for that? What, is it one of those things? Because when you get hurt, right, if I get injured, like, torn my knee a couple times, the second and third times I did it, I knew right away because I'd been there before. Right. Is it the same kind of thing with that where you could feel the warning signs coming? Not with liver cancer. No. no. I mean, I felt bulletproof. By the time I went back in, it had been 15, almost 15 months. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, yeah, because it was last Friday uh, of this October that I found out I had liver cancer. Mm. So I felt amazing. I felt I went in and they were going to say, hey, you're clean, you're clear, great, get out of here. I had to go in every three months for the first two years and went in and, you know, when he said, well, we got bad news, it's back. You know, I always joke and say I thought they were talking about the McRib. And I was like, I love the McRib. Awesome. I'm glad it's back. They weren't. They were talking about McLiver, yeah. you know. And uh, so, yeah, that's why I really, because I felt fantastic. Nothing, mm. not one symptom. My lifts were back up. My weight was up. My head was starting to clear. So, yeah. And then when they told you it was just the ultimate, just came out of left field, you didn't see it coming? Not at all. That was, that was the betrayal. Yeah. That was where my oncologist caught it said, you got to go immediately to go see this doctor. His name's Dr. Seeloff. Great guy. So we called him. They, their office actually called while we were there, set up an appointment, I think, the next day. Kim and I drove there, and, you know, we pulled up this MRI that they took. And he's just as, as I mean, real, when I say no bedside manners, I don't mean that in a bad way. He just... As cool as a cucumber. Like, yeah, just blunt. Like, hey, I just won the lottery, $850 million. <laughs> you know, I mean, that was his personality. And so he's like, yeah, you have liver cancer. It looks at like stage four. You know, you're susceptible for it. You're going to your everything, lungs, mm. you know, kidneys, everything. Uh, so we're going to have to do surgery right away. We have to see how far it's spread. Put you on chemo. Try to slow the disease down. You've got a survivability of about, I don't know, two to three years. 
and I literally raised my hand in his office. It's just he, Kim, and I, like I'm a kid in school. And I said, so survivability, you mean the cancer only has like two to three years that it could survive? Mm. And he, that was the first time he kind of cracked a smirk. And he goes, well, uh, technically, yeah, it'll only survive three years because you're going to be dead and it'll be dead with you. Mm. And I was like, oh. So that really... Uh, punched the wind out of me yeah uh and i i doubled down i said so if we do everything we do surgery we do chemo i get back on this gerson diet i do everything i can maybe even start some more experimental drugs and all this stuff i said what are my odds then and i thought he was going to say well if everything works out perfect then you know you'll be fine and he said well if everything works out perfect maybe four years you know like mm. maybe. i was like great we just i went from maybe two to three to now to maybe three to four and, and that's when I really was like, wow, this is it, you know. Yeah. What's that like? Because most people are never going to know what it's like to be told. Like all of us, we go through life thinking, you know, we got tomorrow. What's it like to be told you potentially don't have tomorrow? Like there's an end date and on all this. So the first 24 hours suck. Mm -hmm. I'm a whiny, crying little baby. Yeah. And then after 24 hours... You know, and during that time, I've called my parents, my sisters, told both my boys. And I'm going, okay, 24 hours, now what? And then it's like, you know, you kind of wake up and you go, well, at least fight it. You know, yeah. I mean, at least go down swinging if it's, you only got two, three years left. The, and I, and I kind of kept that mentality. There were a few, there were a few bad days. Uh, there was two in particular, one... Uh, standing here in the kitchen, I was telling Kim, I'm done. I can't do this. The chemo's, um, can't keep food down. I'm vomiting, bloody nose, pooping my pants. I'm, I'm just tired. I just want to give up. I don't want to do it anymore. And so she had said, okay, don't do it anymore. Give up, but only for today, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and then tomorrow we'll start back. And it sounds kind of stupid, Yeah. but you kind of go, okay, yeah, I'm just going to give up for today. And then she said, why don't you go down and read one of the letters that you wrote yourself. So my oncologist so wisely told me, before you start chemo, write yourself 10 to 15 letters of why you're gonna keep going through chemo, especially liver cancer, because that chemo is the worst. Write yourself letters as far as why you're going to fight this and stick around, because he says you're gonna wanna give up. Yep. Uh, most liver cancer patients only go three months at a time on chemo, then they have to take a break because their body can't take it. And it's called the spaghetti syndrome because over time, the in, your insides just basically turn into spaghetti. So I went down, grabbed the letter. I hadn't opened it yet. And one of the first things, the first paragraph is, you haven't seen your grandkids yet. Because mm. Ryan and Carissa just got married. Yeah. I was like, I, I haven't seen my grandkids yet, man. I, they're not even, I don't even know if they're going to have kids, but I got to be around for it. So that, you know, okay, I got to make this happen. I got to fight. At least till they get here. Yeah. And then about two months later, I went in for some extensive testing. They didn't like the way my chemo was going. And I got the results back that day. And my doctor gave me this article and the results. And he was talking to me, but I'm not kidding you, Justin. If you've never had chemo, you can't explain it. Your brain's just, it's just like when you hit one of those tuning forks and it's, yeah. you know, every thought that comes in, is just vibrating. And so I left. And my dad's driving me home and he's asking me stuff and I'm not, I don't really know what to say because I'm like, 
I'm pretty sure he said I have 11% chance to live until the end of the year. Mm. I mean, I think that's what he said. So I waited till Kim went to bed that night, walked across the street. I don't know if you remember the Dickies who lived, you know, right across the street next to Leslie. She's a nurse. Knocked on the door. It's late at night. She comes down, and she knew I was battling through this. So it's like January. I'm not supposed to be out in the cold. So she goes, get in here. What are you doing? Are you okay? Do I need to take you to the hospital? I'm like, no, no. I said, I have this article, and I have these results that my doctor gave me. And I said, I think I know what he said, and I think I know what they said, but I just need you to look at them and tell me what they say. Mm -hmm. And so she just sat on her little steps right there inside the, the entryway and started reading it, and she got these huge tears in her eyes. And I remember thinking, well, that's not good. Yeah. Um, and she said, it doesn't look like you're probably going to make it to the end of this year. Now, it was January, but still, but that might as well have been tomorrow, you yeah. know, the way you feel. So that was a, a big kick in the pants. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean... A lot of people, I mean, I've, my grandma, obviously, she, she battled cancer. And one of the hardest days of my life is, so she had cancer, and then she fell and she broke her tailbone. And that's kind of what did her. And the cancer killed her, but it was really the broken tailbone with the infection and everything. Yeah. But I'll never forget, my grandma was the strongest person I know. She lost my grandpa, two of her sons, a couple grandkids during her life. Never lost faith, faith in everything. Never complained about anything. But she looked at me in that hospital bed and she was like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like they just got to let me go. And it sounds like you kind of reached that point a couple of times too. Yeah. When you got that, you're not going to make it to the end of the year. Was that kind of what was going through your head was like, well, what's even the point then? What am I fighting for anymore? Kind of thing. It is, you know, it's funny. I think I've been blessed with maybe part stubborn and maybe part stupid. And they kind of helped me and mm-hmm. that there were those days when, I mean, I saw what I put Kim through, you know, I'm just like, just move on with your life. You're still sweet, young, and sexy. You'll have no problem finding another man. Just let me go. Go find somebody else. Mm -hmm. The boys will be great. I had a big part of their lives. They'll be fine. And you kind of get that mindset. And probably for about 24 hours, you know. Yeah. And then I wake up and I'm like, oh, screw that. You know, get a little angry. Yeah. Yeah. And and I kind of go, I want my boys to see me going down fighting. Mm. So even if I die, I'm flipping cancer, the bird, as I'm going down for that last breath. I want them to see me as a fighter. And, and then part of you thinks, well, I might beat this. Maybe I'll beat this, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So your sons obviously were a huge motivating um, force for you. Had you, have you ever heard of the writer? He's a sport or he was a sports writer. He passed recently. Jonathan Charks. Are you familiar with him? So, uh, he had a rare bone cancer. I'll send you the story he wrote. It's called, does my son know you? Like it brought me to tears. It's one of the most emotional stories you'll ever read. But, um, he talked about a lot about in his writing, he had just had a newborn son and how that was motivating him. Cause they told him like, you're, there's no hope for you here. Like we'll put you on experimental drugs, but right. we can't do anything as terminal man. But he talked about how his sons just are not his sons, but his son motivated him to keep going and keep fighting it when everybody else would have just laid down. Was that your biggest motivational factor at that point was just, I might lose, but at least my sons are going to see me fight this thing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I wanted to fight to stay alive. No brainer, but if I'm going to die, you know, to quote Iron uh, Maiden, I want to die with my boots on, you know? (laughs) And so, um, 
my dad, I could tell you numerous stories about he didn't let us quit and he would, it wasn't mean, but he was just, you're going to, you're going to stick this out. You're going to make this happen. And, and saw the drive in my dad and just thought, I just don't want to be that guy who they watched the last three months just kind of, you know, shrivel up in a ball and in a sense, suck his thumb and let the inevitable happen. I want to, mm. you know, I want to just. If nothing else, I want to be 102 pounds and yelling and screaming as I as I'm going yeah. down, you know. So, say, so, and, and I wanted my wife to be proud of how I died, mm-hmm. you know, not just the way I lived, but how I died. Right. You wanted to go out on your shield. We talk about that in MMA all the time. Like, I'd rather go out on my shield. I'd rather get knocked out than get my ass kicked for a five round decision and yeah. not not ever fight back. Yeah. Uh, so that's definitely. That's definitely relatable. So the crazy thing is you're talking about, you know, these these grim diagnoses that you're getting and the feeling of, you know, hopelessness, but you never missed a workout during this time. And I can attest that because I was there. I was working out in the gym with you. Um, It was definitely formative for me because I was like, I don't know, 21 and I was fighting and I'd come in the gym at what I thought was early at 6 a.m. And you'd already be there, you know, dripping in sweat. And it's funny hearing you talk about there's some, and maybe just my memory's wrong on this, because you're saying, like, there were days I'd just grab 10-pound dumbbells, but I swear to God, I remember you squatting, like, 405 while you were on chemo. Like, I'd come in, and you'd be, there's the picture I put up yeah. of you the other week where you look exhausted. You're sitting on the box squat, but there's, like, 405 on that squat it, bar. Let's not cut it short. It's 585. Okay, so that's okay. Not, you know. Yeah, so um, what was keeping you just working out through all of this? Like, it right. makes sense when you first got diagnosed that you were working out, but the worst, like the worst it got, most people would have quit at that point. Right. What made you keep going and keep working out and keep pushing yourself physically? Well, you know, again, this sounds weird, but, um, with liver cancer, I, I, I started to lose strength right away, even before I knew I had colon cancer. But when I was going into liver cancer, I'd got most of my lifts back. I mean, I was, I was pretty strong. So right away, between surgery and chemo, it took about a, two months for me to really start to notice my, my strength decline. Plus, I knew right away then to start doing marijuana brownies and muffins and all that. So it definitely declined, but it, it didn't decline as fast as when I first had colon cancer. But the biggest thing for me the second time was, again... I have control over that. I can choose to go in and work out. But I think for me, it was honestly like, okay, if I'm going to die, there's, there's really only four or five things that I really, really, really enjoy. You know, mm-hmm. I really enjoy my time with God and just getting up and reading and praying. I really enjoy sex with my wife. I really enjoy time with my family and laughing and, you know, over a meal or over football or something like that. And then I just really, really enjoy uh, watching fights or a football game with, you know, just my guy friends. Many times you would come over. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it was really kind of built around relationships. And thought, okay, those are the things I just want to make the most of. Sure. And, you know, if, if I'm going to die, then I want to, and again, the whole idea of actually making out with your wife, uh, I, my wife, is... I knew once chemo started, I couldn't anyway, and sure. thought, and I might die, and so this is it. You know, I start. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of go, okay, I start uh, chemo October twenty first, and that might be it. So, how much sex can we have in the next four weeks? Mm-hmm. And it sounds crazy, but you go, that's what I'm looking at. Sure. So I have maybe two years with my boys, 
So what are all the things I can do hanging out with my boys? And what are all the things I can do, you know, it, with these, again, these few elements that I like, stuff in as much as I can during this time. And so that was probably the biggest thing is, is I went to the gym because there was control and because it, this is going to be it. Last, you just love doing it. Yeah, the last yeah. year or two years that I'll be able to go to the gym. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's fitting that, that you're on this podcast and that I call it the, I call it the Train Insane and Remain the Same podcast. Um, and it's kind of your fault because <laughs> you really, like, those are my formative years always in the gym. Always the blame. Because <laughs> people have always told me, like, dude, you train insane. Like, when I'm healthy, I push myself in my workouts <clears throat> pretty hard. And then people have seen me working out in a sling or a walking boot or crutches right. or whatever. Um, and that's all, you know, because I was 19, 20, 21 and when you weren't battling chemo and working out, you were putting me through crazy workouts. I remember you had me do some crazy push-up thing where I started with like 10 chains on my neck and go to failure, you'd take a chain off and go to failure just till you got the body weight and just... So you're pretty much the reason why I train the way I train because just seeing you like continue to work out day after day going through what you were going through now, it always it still runs in the back of my head. You know, we're almost 10 years later now. But like the days when... I'm sitting there in a sling and I'm like, I can only do like hip mobility stuff today. What's the point? I'm like, well, Garth was, you know, on death's doorstep and he was still working out. Like, what's my excuse? Right. So you made a huge impact, you know, Hey, on me at least. How is your bicep anyway? I mean, it's getting better every day. The, it's funny because I had a, my first post-op appointment 10 days later and the doctor was like, okay, it's going to be about another week before you can straighten it all the way out. And I was like, you mean like this? And he was like, how are you doing that? I was like, I don't know. I'm just doing it. And then, like, they said it's going to be eight weeks before I could curl it all the way. It's been three weeks. I'm curling it all the way. Like, I'm just a fast healer. It's probably similar. And you're already healthy. I mean, I'm healthy. I haven't. The only times I missed a workout was the day of surgery and the day after. So even though I'm only able to do, I have a quad day, a hamstring day, a hip mobility day, and a core day. I feel like even though I'm only able to do those, I'm still working out, getting active, getting the red, the red blood cells flowing, so it's just yeah. speeding up the healing process. That's huge. That's a big part of the healing process, for yeah, sure. Just keep, I mean, just keeping it somewhat normal. Um, but when, so your battle with liver cancer, how long did that take? Like, how long were you fighting that? Uh, it was... My memory was it was a couple of years, but I feel like I'm misremembering. No, it was, well, so what happened is found out I had uh, liver cancer, Two months of surgery and recovery because they had to go in and take a third of my liver. Then during that time, they found a tumor also in my, in my anus that they thought possibly was spread from the cancer. And uh, they found a tumor in my mammary gland, which is your cheekbone. So about two years with chemo and surgery. And after two years, I was still just drained. I just felt like I've not bounced back the way... I, I did with colon cancer and now I'm like liver cancer. Maybe it's different, but I went into my doctor one day and, and I was saying, man, I really feel like I know my body pretty well. Something's going on. So I said, can we do another MRI, but you know, do my whole body. Cause we're just scanning from my, literally from almost my sternum to my, to my navel basically. Sure. And so he did a full body scan. And what's weird is when I was going in to get a clear, you know, you're, you're a year out of, cancer with your liver which they don't consider remission but at least like a year marker yeah walking into that doctor's office literally in the building walking down the hall i get a call from this test place 
And they say, yeah, Mr. Ekman, this is so-and-so, Dr. So-and-so, you have a brain tumor. And I was like, what the f are you, you know? Yeah. I had naughty words coming to my brain. And, um, I so mean, if you want, you can cuss on here. We cuss all the time <laughs> yeah, on this podcast. Yeah. I don't know if all you right. listen to the one with Ray. I mean, that one. Son of a nutcracker. <laughs> uh, so I, you know, I walk into my oncologist and I tell him. And this doctor on the phone wouldn't tell me anything. He just said, you know, you need to come in. So my oncologist calls him back and says, hey, what's going on? So find out then and there. It's benign, but it's, you know. But it's still a tumor. Still a tumor, still growing, can still affect you. So long story short, it's benign. It, it um, requires a couple shots a week, some pills. They've monitored it now for five, six years. Uh, I think longer than that, actually. Longer than that, I forget with COVID. It's not growing anymore, so now it's just going every two years, unless I have symptoms like blurred vision, hearing loss, mm. loss of taste, things like that. Yeah. Which I'm laughing because I'm getting so old. I'm, I have blurred vision and hearing anyway. loss, but I don't think it's from that. And if that's the case, then it's probably grown again, and then they'd have to remove it. Otherwise, sure. it's just maintained. Like it's kind of like diabetes is the way they explain it: shots mm. and pills, and just maintain. Yeah, yeah. Live your life. So what was what was the feeling like that final? Did you know the final chemo session of liver cancer was going to be the final one? I chose it. Yeah. Okay. How good did it feel when you walked out of there and you knew you were done with it? It didn't feel good at all. No. No, it felt scary. Mm. I I was supposed to have actually uh, two more weeks, and I was supposed to be speaking in Chicago to a group of about four or five thousand kids. I had I had accepted the date. A year before that, before I knew I was going to have cancer, I wanted to keep the date, but I told the doctor, hey, if, if, if this is my last chemo, then it's the day before I go to Chicago to speak. If it's not my last chemo, then I come back again in another week and I have chemo after that. I'd love to be able to stand up and tell the kids I had my last chemo, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, missing these last two weeks be a will it like well got to start over yeah and he just said no he said if you're going to need more chemo you're going to need more chemo and if not no but two weeks isn't anything yeah in the scheme of things so i chose okay then this would be my last one and never forget never forget they unplugged me i had this i had this uh habit i still do every time i'm there from the first time i went I walk out the door, there's a long hallway, and as I walk down the hallway, I flip the bird off behind <laughs> me to that place. Um, and I remember walking out of there, last chemo, and flipping the bird off all the way down the hallway, but being scared to death that I'm going to have to come back, that mm. they're going to say in three months or six months, hey, you know, it's back in your liver or your lungs or your whatever, your intestines somewhere, or extremity something. And so really nerve-wracking. Yeah. Never, that was one of the few times, I told my dad everything, but one of the few things I never told my boys or my wife, because I wanted them to think, I was like, yep, we're done, I've kicked this thing's ass, let's move on. Sure. But by no means was I this confident, like, yeah, we're yeah. done. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So. Is that, that fear, does that ever leave? Like, when you go to the doctor today, or is it in the back of your head, like, what if they do a scan and it's back? Yeah, it finally left. I mean, it took a while, especially since, you know, like I said, a, a year after liver cancer, they found this brain tumor. Yeah. And it was funny because you look at the calendar, 
and it looked like every 15 months something traumatic happened in my life. So, you know, all of a sudden you look at the county and go, well, it's 15 months. You know, here we... <laughs> yeah. You, <clears throat> oh, what's that? <clears throat> you know, the, it, that definitely has left. It has not left Kim. Mm. Uh, and I think Reese, again, also many times, he'll hear me cough or I'll say I hurt something or we'll be lifting. He'll be like, well, what is it? Are you okay? Or yeah, I just, yeah. I worked hamstrings yesterday. I'm sore, <laughs> you know, or, or whatever. Cam's a little more uh, probably overly assertive when it comes to if I feel like I something might be wrong. And I'm talking headache, earache, anything like that. She's got to go get checked in. Got to go get checked I typically do for her unless I really know it's nothing. But even then, at that point, I don't sweat it now. I just, I kind of feel like I'm immune to cancer. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of feel like, well, <laughs> if I get it again, we'll just beat it again. So sure. I'm not going to spend time worrying about it. That makes sense. Um, so the, the lift that, or the meet that you did, the Hope Kids meet, were you, were you in chemo still when you did that? Or yeah. Were you, you yeah. Were, yeah, I thought, I thought you were. That's insane that you were in chemo and doing a meet. How did that, how did that whole thing come about? Because if I remember right, they did a meet first as a fundraiser for you. And then Hope Kids, kind of, the whole relentless thing kind of took off and they started doing more events. And then you went and competed in one a couple months later. How did that come about? And did everybody think you were absolutely insane for wanting to compete while on chemo? Um, well, I, I wasn't on chemo. I finished. Okay. So the first one was while I was on chemo. Yeah. And that was originated uh, Hammy, Mike Hamilton, and Scott Nutter wanted to do something to help raise funds to pay for medical expenses. So they came up with this idea to do this powerlifting fundraiser. It was a huge success. A ton of powerlifters from all over the country came. But even before, even before it happened, Scott Nutter was saying how God told him it's going to go beyond just me. It's going to go beyond what he expects. And, man, it has. They've done amazing. But Scott and Mike put all the work into that. I mean, they worked their butts off. Mm -hmm. And then every meet afterwards, they've done tremendous work. And it, Relentless has just kind of grown into its own entity. Yeah, They've raised, I don't know, I think it's close to a million dollars for Hope Kids. They've had them in Michigan. Uh, Minnesota, a few other places too. At one point, they were going to try to hold one in Germany, a bunch of different stuff. But that's where I go, okay, if, if I got cancer to get this started, uh, I mean, I didn't put any work into it. I, I feel like I still took a brunt of the, of the blow with sure. having cancer. Yeah. Um, but if that helped be the genesis of this event and what it's now still doing, then thank you, Jesus, you know, that it's, it's taken off. And again, without the work of Mike and Scott, and many people, not just them, but many people, uh, it, it would not have become what it has. And then you see all the lives and all the kids that it touched. Mm -hmm. So, pretty that's, cool. That's got to be crazy, because I, I remember I went to the, the first one and then the one you competed in, and just seeing those kids, man, it, it struck, because you see a five-year-old who has terminal cancer, and like you, you just want to cry, because you're like, this doesn't make any sense. But when you're going through your own cancer... And then you're seeing somebody, you know, way younger than you fight the same battle. Yeah. Does that kind of reinvigorate you to keep fighting? Kind of give you that extra push? Like, hey, if this five-year-old's doing it, I can do it too. Oh, man. You know, my first surgery for colon cancer, I'm in the hospital. I'm kind of having a pity party that weekend. And there, there's the room straight across from me. And the way my bed is set up, I can see out the door. 
and I see this husband and wife going in and out of this room. For some reason, I don't know why, I was thinking they were there to see her father. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of made this story up in my head. I don't even know how close to the last week or close to the last day I was there, I was able to get up and walk the halls. So I walk all the way down to the end of the hall to get a cup of coffee. And they're down there having some coffee. And we're kind of talking. And they're saying, why are you here? I'm telling them I have colon cancer. And, you know, very much, uh, you know, <laughs> colon cancer, you know. And she's talking. And she goes, yeah, life is full of surprises. And she goes, you know, I'm just sitting here telling my husband, I thought for sure we'd have more than eight Christmases with our son. Mm. And, and, I, and I was like, I said, well, I'm sorry, your, your son's here? She goes, yeah, that's who's in the hospital, our, our son, some disease. And they're hoping he makes it till Christmas. And this is October. Mm. And I remember feeling so ashamed. Just like, yeah. who, who, who am I to complain? You know, I went back to my room and kind of chastised myself and said, come on, Garth. You know, you're better yeah. than this. Got an eight-year-old kid across the hall from you. So you see kids like that and a lot of women... And you realize, man, there are warriors out there. I need to step up my game. Yeah. They're a lot younger and a lot, you know, a lot more going against them than me. So, yeah, that's uh, that's one thing I always, you know, loved about you when you were fighting all of it is you never complained. At least you never complained to me. I know you didn't really complain to Ryan because me and Ryan would talk every day about it. And I'd be like, how's your dad? And he's like, he tells me he's doing great. He don't look too great, but he tells me. And that's something that I've always taken to is. No matter what I'm going through, I always remind myself it could be worse. And uh, I forget who told me it, but they say you shouldn't complain about your problems because 95% of people don't care and the other 5% want to see you fail anyways. Right. So yeah. what are you complaining for? And that's I kind of took that attitude from you because it wouldn't – I'd come in the gym at 6 a.m. and like – you you would look pretty rough, man. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how to sugarcoat it, but I'd always be like, "Hey, man, how you doing?" And you'd be like, "I'm I'm great." And you'd immediately switch the conversation to like, "When's your next fight? Like, what's the right. opponent like?" You know, you you'd just switch it. And you never it never from the outside. I know you probably were on your own, but you never to me seemed like you were wallowing in pity or feeling sorry for yourself. And that was that was just huge to see, especially at that young age that I was at. Well, I'm happy you saw it. I I saved those pity party moments for my wife. Mm -hmm. And for my dad, because I knew, you know, they would slap me back into perspective. But again, going back to what I said earlier, I never wanted my boys to see me as a whiner or a complainer. Yeah. And it, it doesn't, it really doesn't help. In fact, it hurts. It makes you fall more into that mindset. Yeah. And so you just go, okay. Uh, I definitely go down to the basement into my office, pray, yell at God, get mad at him. And okay, be done with it. Now move mm -hmm. on. Yeah. So, yeah. So when you decided to actually compete in the next relentless meet, was that like a spur of the moment type thing or was that always the plan? Well, the first one, uh, I was so sick during that first meet, I had to keep going into the back to one of the offices and laying down. And a lot of it was just sensory overload because of all the chemo. And I remember thinking, man, I hope I'm around next year. I'd love to lift and, and be in it. But I don't know, you know, maybe yeah. I won't be. Maybe they have this Garth Heckman slideshow next year because I'm mm -hmm. not here. You know, you have all these crazy thoughts. But I thought, but if I'm alive, even if you roll me out there in a wheelchair and I do a dumbbell curl with 10 pounds, you know, I want to do something just to be here and tell them thank you. And that was kind of the goal. And then once you, you know, you get out on the other side of it, 
and you're like, okay, hey, this, you know, th this could happen. This is going to actually happen. And you start to feel better. And, and that first uh, relentless that I competed in, I was only, it was deadlift only. Mm -hmm. They were just allowing me to come in and pull. And I remember <clears throat> I wanted to pull 500. And I pulled it pretty easy. And so I went up 550 and pulled it okay, you know. Mm -hmm. Again, I still didn't have my weight up. And then I said, okay, if I hit 580, that's 100 pounds away from, you know, my, my best pull. Mm -hmm. And so I pulled 580. It was a grind. It was a grind. Uh, and got it. And then I was really excited because I didn't expect to pull that much. But then thought, okay, from here on out, next year, if we're going to have this again, I want to do a full meet. So Yeah. And uh, training up for that meet, was that, was that hard? Was that humbling? Because you hadn't trained for a meet or competed in a meet since before the cancer. So was it kind of like a reality check? Like, whoa, where did my strength go? Like, I used to pull. These used to be my warm-up sets. Oh, terribly. Uh, you know, two things happened during that. We had... Uh, a, a photo shoot at Southside with Pavel uh, Susaloni, or however you say his name is, uh, the Russian kettlebell guy, mm -hmm. and Andy Bolton, first guy to deadlift a thousand pounds. They came to our gym to do a photo shoot with Dragon Door, and um, it, it was such a great lesson in strength because you had Pavel who is like a skinnier version of you, but mm -hmm. he's solid. Yeah. And you had Andy Bolton, who, you know, was a, a mountain. And they're both doing things for this shoot. And, and Pavel is freakishly strong. And at that time, I probably still weighed 100 pounds more than him. Yeah. And he's doing kettlebell, you know, pistol squats with, you know, 75-pound kettlebell over his head and crazy things. And talking to him and talking to Andy, and the one thing Pavel kept saying is, he said, the American mindset has got to be broken from thinking that size is strength. Sure. And said, you know, you can have incredible strength, and you don't have to be a, a super heavyweight or walk around at 280 pounds. And watching him do things, and so if, if no one's ever done a pistol squat, then, hard. then holding a 75-pound kettlebell over your head, I tried to do one in a sling two weeks ago, and I fell on my face. <laughs> like, I can yeah. normally do pistol squats pretty easily. I'm a pretty mobile dude, but yeah. something about just having that arm pinned to me, I oh, couldn't yeah. balance, and I got... I took a video of it. It was on my Instagram story for a while, and people were laughing because you see me get about halfway down, and then you see that, oh, shit look in my eyes, right, right. and then you see me try to plan, like, how am I going to fall and not hurt myself first? <laughs> so I don't know how people do those overhead ones. Those are crazy. Right. So when I saw that, I, I remember thinking, okay, there's really no excuse. I can, I can get stronger. I can work through things, especially hearing Pavel, you know, talk about things like that. And you just, you learn that, you know, your biggest, it's so cliche, especially every social media post lately saying this, but your biggest hindrance is just your own mind. You know, the battle yeah. always starts in your mind. Whatever it is, it always starts and ends in your thought process. Mm -hmm. So you have to change that to, to figure out where you're going and what you want to do, who you want to be. Yeah. So when you did the meet, you pulled 580. How good did that feel? That had to have felt amazing. Oh, it felt amazing. Because Ryan still has the picture. It's, I think it's framed in his house somewhere. But you're surrounded by people. Yeah. People, like, people are going nuts. 
uh, you're like screaming at the top of the rep. Like that had to have felt amazing. It did. What the best part about that is when I pulled 500, it went up so quickly. And now today, 500 is. It, and not not if someone's maxing 500, God bless you. Yeah, you're talking and, to a guy who's maxed his 535. So yeah, tread so, lightly yeah. here. So relatively, as someone who's who's deadlifted way more than that, I've still lost a lot of weight and weak. I pulled 500 really easy, and mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of it was the crowd and the day and the environment. And I remember going I bet back. Your and, adrenaline was just pumping. Oh, it was insane. Um, I remember telling Hammy then after I pulled that, I said, "What do you think I should go for?" Because I thought I'd barely grind out 500 and maybe put on like 515 and, and, and not get it. Sure. And I said, I, I feel like like just, let's just go for it. Do 550. Yeah. And Hammy just looked at me and goes, yeah, okay, let's, you know, let's do <laughs> let's it. Let's do it. So, and then when I pulled that, then that's when I was ecstatic. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably, probably jumping from that to 580, even though it's only 30 pounds. Probably stupid, but again, on just sheer adrenaline, uh, started a helicopter a little bit on it, but pulled it, and that was just, you know, then the, then I could do no wrong that day. That was the highlight of my life. You're and, like walking on the moon at that yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. And went to bed, I think, at about 6 o'clock that night. I was so wiped <laughs> out, so. Yeah. Uh, so, you you know, you, you beat liver cancer. You get the all clear. When you return to training... Is it kind of like being a beginner again in the sense, not in the sense of the loss of strength, but more in the sense that the gains return rapidly, like because you're able to eat normally again? You're, was it like that? Was it kind of like when you're a beginner and you're PRing every two weeks? Not PRing, but PRing compared to what you were doing before while lifting on chemo. Like, did you feel it come back pretty quickly? Yeah. You know, the weird thing is I'd say I probably burned out mentally faster than I did physically. Mm. So, yeah, your gains are coming back fast. My nutrition's, I mean... It's, I don't say dialed in like there's just this, any big diet. I'm just eating a lot of protein. Yeah. Like I said, a lot of fish, a lot of steak, a lot of clean fish, not just, you know, breaded, you know, stuff. Sure. But so strength's coming back pretty regularly. But the amazing thing to me is you do deadlifts and you look at your log and you've got like six more exercises. And you're like, I think I'm done. You know, <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I mean, mentally I am fried. And that... That didn't last real long, maybe only about two months. But that was what was most surprising to me. Yeah. And but that was the way it was through chemo. You'd go to read something, and after a page, you'd be like, "I can't do this anymore. I'm just, sure. I'm, I'm tired. I gotta, I gotta." So that was in every area. But when you are finally done with chemo, you'd expect it to almost be back to normal. Right. And it wasn't that quick. Sure. Because so. I bet. I bet you were thinking, like, when you started working out again after chemo, you're like, all right, sweet, no more of these light lifts anymore. Like, I'm good to go. Let's start oh, yeah. Let's start bench pressing 300 pounds and just start throwing up crazy weight. How long did it take post the last liver cancer chemo? Like, how long did it take before you started feeling normal again in the gym? Uh, you know, normal is... Uh, it's a relative word. Yeah. I would say... The first time I benched 400 again, I kind of felt like, because you get a little nervous. You're like, man, am I ever, am I ever going to, and I've had numerous injuries where you ask yourself that, and you mm-hmm. know I will, but you have know, these magical numbers in your head. Will I ever be able to deadlift 500 again? Will I ever be able to bench 400 again? Will I ever, you know, whatever, squat 600? And because you feel like, okay, for where I was at, that's foundation. Yeah. 
But now that's not even foundation. That's my wish list, you know. Yeah. And so you kind of feel like if I can get back to that, then I know, okay, I'm kind of at ground zero for me. And now I can keep pushing. I was probably, uh, I don't know. I wish Hammy was here. He'd probably know better than I would. I remember the first time I benched 315. And I remember him saying something like, hey, man, I know you've been looking for that. You know, congrats. And and it was probably almost a year later yeah. that I hit 400. Mm. And, again, my deadlift came pretty fast. I have a video of me. I think I have 500 on the bar and about 100 pounds of chains. Mm. And I pulled that, and I remember thinking, okay, this is, you know, again, that's a benchmark. Now we can go from there. Right. I don't remember for squat. I don't, I don't uh, but probably all of those were about a year out after, uh, after chemo. Is squats the hardest one to do with all the, because all the surgeries you've had, they're obviously in your torso area, right? right? So does that make squats hard to do? Because that's the most core engagement out of the big three. Well, so out of, after all the lifting and meets and surgeries, I had to have total abdominal reconstruction because mm -hmm. I had what was called cluster hernias, 14 hernias. So they gut you from your sternum all the way down, all the way down. Yeah, you still um, got a pretty large scar, don't you? Yeah. yeah. Uh, one of many. So when the, when the doctor did that, who's a specialist, he said, no more heavy lifting, uh, you know, no more power lifting because, you know, at this point, whatever gets messed up is going to be spaghetti and I can't sew spaghetti, which mm -hmm. he literally said. So... You would think squats and deadlift would be the hardest, yeah. but it's not because you are you are compressed on your stomach at really the hardest part of the lift. So as you go down, you're kind of tightening your stomach and compressing sure. it. Same with deadlift. Actually, because I'm a belly bencher, I did more damage to my stomach always benching uh, because mm. you know you're you're completely arched as hard as you can. Yeah. Your torso torso stretched like a balloon, and you're pushing your stomach up in the air to cut your stroke, and then you're you know lowering five six hundred pounds. That was all, even with a belt on. That always messed my stomach up the most. So I had to go back to almost like a bodybuilding style bench press right across Sorry. the chest. Um, elbows still not really flared out a lot, but you know more than normal. Just so that I don't put all that pressure on my stomach. Mm. So obviously you're still lifting heavy these days. I put that video up of you the other day. Was that a 600 pound deadlift? Uh, 650 it... or 600, depending on which one you put up. Oh, the <laughs> one where you compared it me to you? Yeah. Yeah, that was 650. Yeah, that's yeah, that six. So you're still obviously lifting heavy. Um, when did you? When did you kind of know your like? When did you know you weren't going to compete in any more lifts? Like, what was the? Er, not any more lifts. Any more meets? Like, when was the end of that? That was uh, well, when I went in for this hernia surgery, and my yeah. doctor said, you're done. Did you do that lifting? Uh, yeah, I did it on my last meet thing? benching. Yeah. Mm. And literally felt like, uh, you know, when you get that pack, those packing bubbles, the big ones, mm -hmm. and literally felt kind of like a pup, 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 pup <laughs> in my stomach. And it was like, you well, probably still finished the set, the rep too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're like, well, I'm, I'm, everyone's watching. I can't, you know, get up and explain myself to them. So finished, finished the the whole meet, and then when I went in, the doctor was like, I could tell that night. I took my shirt off and looked, and I was like, holy buckets, what happened? Yeah. And went in and like, oh, you have cluster hernias. I was like, is that good or bad? Oh, it's bad. No, it's it's bad. like it's really bad. <laughs> I was like, okay. And that's when Doctor Hope, 
who's since retired, another great doctor, said, this is it. In fact, that was his last surgery, Justin. He was oh. retiring. He retired the, on you. Yeah. He said, you're my, you're my big uh, hurrah. So. You were like his Kobe 60-point game in yeah, the last yeah, game. Really, <laughs> yeah. He can literally say, my last hernia surgery was 14 hernias <laughs> on this idiot powerlifter. And, and so I knew that was it. And again, he said, you know, lifting heavy is relative. So my, you know, favorite stories, he said, don't just walk into the gym and like think you're going to bench 200 pounds, you know, because to him, that was a ton of weight. And I'm like, well, doc, that's kind of what I warm up with. Yeah, but, that's my warm up, dude. But what was nice is, again, no one lifting, knowing my body. Again, most people think it's like you said, deadlift or squat. That's the yeah. hardest on your stomach. And it, and it wasn't. So mm. I'm really careful how much I bench. In fact, if I'm going to bench, I don't think I've benched over 400 for probably a year. If I'm going to do a max for my bench, I'll just do 225 and, and do the the math equation for it. So I did that a couple months ago, and I did it 27 times. Mm. Uh, and and that's just as easy to me as putting on, you know, 450 pounds and seeing if I can still do it. So. Sure. What's, what's your secret? Because, I mean, for lifting, for powerlifting as long as you did, like your joints are pretty healthy. Most people, I've seen squat videos of you, you're still getting deeper than most guys. Um, like Ronnie Coleman has to walk around in a walker now because yeah. of the way he lifted. Um, bench press, it sounds like your stomach stops you from lifting heavy, not your shoulders or your elbows or anything. Well, what do you think has been your secret in maintaining pretty healthy joints? Well, first, let's not, con con uh, um, let's not confuse me with Ronnie Coleman well, yeah, and very yeah. few conversations. Yeah. Uh, I'm white, he's black. That's about a, that, <laughs> We're both human. Uh, and then after that, the, the similarities are really far apart. Uh, I have been probably, this started when I was still lifting and water skiing. I would go to the gym the next morning after water skiing and be so tight mm -hmm. that I just kind of always made stretching. Now, I don't, when I say stretching, I don't mean like getting down on a mat and, you know, and touching my toes or things like that. That's probably important. But for, for the heavy lifts, my back and knees have always been blessed. I've been blessed. And, and again, I think a lot of that is from water skiing from the age four on up. Just it's hardening my, those tendons. Yeah, my knees yeah. and lower back. I've never had lower back or knees problems ever. And I just thank God that I don't. But uh, for pressing, you know, shoulder press and bench press, I've had to learn numerous stretches for my elbows and my shoulders. And I mean, I probably got... 20 stretches specifically for those joints and I'll do active release therapy wrapping them with bands and all kinds of different stuff and I take it really seriously I, I devote two days a week where I'll spend 45 minutes just doing those stretches on my elbows and my shoulders it, there's no other way to <laughs> shush there's no other way to continue to lift as long as I have as heavy as I have without doing that yeah. it's not you know I'll, if I had a dollar every time someone my age came up and said, hey, do you take, you know, calcium or do you take CQ10 or do you take all that? I go, no, I really, Yeah. I just, I just stretch, you know. Yeah. I, I'm sure I eat plenty of protein. Uh, if that helps with your cartilage and things like that, I'm not sure. But just stretch. And, and again, my warm-up, my warm-ups for my big lifts are probably 20 minutes. Like a, for bench, I'm going to do... I'm going to do the bar two sets of 20, then I'm going to put on 25s. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do that 25 times. I'm going to put 135 on, do that 25 times. I'm going to put on 185. I'm going to do that 20 times. I'm going to put on 225. I'm going to do that 10, 15 times. 
And then at that point, I'm like, okay, now, now if I'm going to lift heavy that day, okay, now let's start to lift heavy. Sure. Uh, One thing that I forgot to ask you last week that I was curious about, do you think, do you think can't, working out while you had cancer, do you think that helped take the ego out of your workouts? Because that's the way a lot of people hurt themselves. You know, you go in the gym, you're like, I'm going to bench 315 today. You get up to 275 and it's a grind, but you're like, I said, I'm going to bench 315 today. I'm going to do it. And then you power through because of ego. But lifting while you're in cancer, you obviously probably didn't have ego in your lifts. You're like, if I can curl five pounds today, I'm going to curl right. five pounds today. Does that same attitude happen now where you probably go in with a number in your head, but if you work up and aren't feeling good, you're able to just take the ego out? Well, it's so funny you say that. Yes, definitely when you walk into a gym and you're used to, you know, curling dumbbells all the way up to 100 seriously, and now you're doing 10s, your ego has to check itself at the door. Yeah. Uh, but what's funny is Mike Morgan, that this guy who had such an influence on me powerlifting, he used to say all the time, you know, because people would say, you know, those days where you walk into the gym and you feel like crap and then you lift amazing. And there are days you walk in and you feel amazing and you lift like crap. Mm -hmm. And he would hear things like that and he'd always say, that's stupid. <laughs> he'd be like, you have a workout. Here, you already know your sets. You already know your reps. You already know your numbers. Go in and do it. And then next week it's going to change slightly. So even if you went in and, you know, we've all gone to a guest gym. Mm -hmm. and we're traveling, whatever, and a million times I'll see people lifting. I'm like, I just, just want to put 450 on the bench and just shut people up or yeah. whatever. But again, Mike would say, if you do that, you're starting that whole eight-week cycle over again. Yeah. Because you just blew that cycle. Mm -hmm. So you'd say, like, who cares? Don't lift with your ego. Lift. He'd say, do the math. Here's your math for today. Mm -hmm. Here's your math for tomorrow. Here's Do that, and then next week, do the math for that week. And so that helped a ton. But yes, at the same time, especially when you own your own powerlifting gym yeah. and people come in and they don't know you, like, are you the owner? Yeah. I'm like, oh, great. I want to sign up. And then they see you the next day and you're benching the bar. Yeah. <laughs> They're kind of like, you own a powerlifting gym? Yep. And you, yeah. But, you know, no excuses, no complaints. Yeah. Just being diligent with the program is a big way to keep the ego out yeah. of those lifts. Um, so now you're, are you, you're not 10 years post-cancer yet, are you? Gotta be, I am, gotta be coming up yeah, no, I am. Oh, you are? Uh, well, I, my last cancer was 2009. Uh, chemo was 2010, 11-ish, so I'm about 11 years out. Okay. About 11 years out. What do your workouts look like nowadays? I still do a, a heavy day and a speed day, mm. so very much conjugate still. My, I still want to lift heavy, so I have to be safe. So I'll do, for bench, again, it's really conjugate. I'll do a press. For bench, I'll do, my first day is all pressing. So whether it's bench, incline, decline, or uh, on the Smith machine, or I'll press the leg press at my gym because they don't have a good military machine, so I'll press the leg press. Uh, or anything like that. And then the next day is all accessory, um, shoulders and tries. Mm -hmm. And that's much higher volume. Then my next bench workout will be speed. And I'll use bands or chains or, you know, again, conjugate. For uh, back, it's very much the same thing. First day is heavy deads. Always be changing up what kind of deads I do. Uh, right now I'm doing a cycle of three weeks of rack pulls uh, just below the knee, mm -hmm. heavy. And then on the opposite days for legs, it'll be speed. So I was just finishing some box squats. Uh, speed, 
with bands, do that for three weeks, and then I'll switch it up and I'll do speed deadlifts, mm-hmm. and I'll do um, heavy squats of some variation, bands, chains, whatever. And but then after every lift, so like on deadlift day, I do bent over rows, uh, wide grip, and then bent over V rows, all heavy. And the very next day, I do all light, high accessory, upper back work. Yeah. So a lot of uh, T-bar, a lot of pull-ups, uh, a lot of machines that are working over my head. And then same thing with legs. Legs, I'll do a heavy squat day, and I'll pull the sled. And then the next day, I'll do all basically machines, high reps, things like that. Yeah. So, so. still, you're mixing a little bit of everything. You're mixing yeah. a little powerlifting, a little bodybuilding, a little yeah. bit of everything into it. That makes sense. Um, so obviously, you don't own Southside anymore. But you have a bunch of different other business ventures in the works. Last time you talked about how you're planning on opening another gym. Yeah. Um, and that you said last time that cancer kind of tied into why you have so much going right now. Because you realize I only have an infinite amount of time on this earth. I'm going to accomplish what I can accomplish. So what all do you got cooking right now? So I have my, my Monday through Friday podcast, David Alliance. Eight minutes long. It's just a shot of adrenaline for your spirit. Mm-hmm. Got uh, 98,000 listeners, I think, something like that. Nice. And have that. I have, obviously, I'm still a full-time pastor, keeping me very busy. I'm still a personal trainer. Uh, I keep that pretty light. I've only got five clients right now. Can't really take any more on because of my schedule. Uh, I'm, I'm currently giving and taking drum lessons. Mm. So um, I've, I've authored quite a few books for Hal Leonard for guitar, and so I'm, I'm doing a little bit of that again. Then my major business is I'm about to launch an app called Bid Jones, which is a, a buyer, sellers, traders app, much like eBay or Craigslist or anything like that, but it's using blockchain technology. So you can blockchain any of your uh, art, music, uh, contracts, anything like that, put a couple hundred thousand into that and going to be getting ready to launch that. I have what's called... Icebreaker, I-I-C-E-B-R-A-K-E-R, and they're different coasters for different parties, events, whether sporting or women or weddings, things like that, uh, which is uh, just launched a couple weeks ago. And then I have Well Built Body, wellbuiltbody.com, which is a clothing line, mm-hmm. gym apparel, and just finished this fall's, this new fall-winter um, line of clothes and colors, and we're going to get ready to launch that then. And then my sister and I were going to be launching a relationship website and Patreon channel. Hmm. And we're going to do that. And I'm just finishing my 14th book. Uh, <laughs> Where do you find men. the free time, man? Uh, you know what? I do a lot of my work in front of the TV watching football. Okay. So I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but I, I don't have a lot of hobbies, you know. Yeah. I mean, I work out every day and I like to shoot my bow and my guns. And that's, you know, and hunt. And that's really about it. I don't. Not in baseball or bowling or hang out in the garage and drink beers with my buddies or anything like that. There's just, like I said, a lot to do. So I try to focus my energies on on the things that need to get done. Sure. Um, so we'll wrap up on this. But I was just wondering, as you were going through cancer, did you realize like the impact you were having on people? Because one of the things that struck me is when I, you know, announced that I was having you on the podcast and I've been promoting it on different social media platforms. The amount of people who are like, I can't wait to hear his story, like. I, I saw what he was doing, but I never knew the background. I, like People were just hyped to hear about it. Did you realize it as you were going through it, or were you so focused? I'm sure people came up to you all the time, but you're 
you're a prideful dude too when people are coming up to you and like telling you you're inspiring them you're probably like eh I mean I'm just trying to get through the day man you know I'm glad that they have so much of it though comes back to where you're at mentally with chemo yeah people to this day will tell me oh I remember when you had cancer and we did this or I was there and did and I don't remember I don't remember it yeah uh, chemo brain is real I know that so I'd love to say yeah I was really you know I just taking it on the chin to inspire people I had I was just trying to stay alive. Yep. Uh, it does make me realize that people are watching. Yeah. You don't have to have chemo to realize people are watching. Yep. Uh, you know, Uncle Raj, who does our tattoos at Guns and Needles, he's got a great line. He goes, no one ever wants to be that guy. Mm-hmm. No one wants to be referred to as that guy. And so in the back of my mind, I was like, yeah, I don't ever want to be that guy, you know. But I didn't go out of my way to be anyone's hero or, or you know, to push anybody. I'm glad it's happened. I've heard some great stories about it. But it's just trying to stay alive, man. It's yeah. Just, just another day to breathe and kiss my wife and, you know, hang out with my boys. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the chemo brain. You probably don't even remember, but it's you and Armando. You're the two. You were going through chemo as it happened, but you guys literally, like, sat me down. We're like, dude, you're in the gym all the time. You're crushing it. This was a point in my life. I think I was 21. So we're getting some bar security, just making ends meet, pursuing fighting, but didn't have any kind of career path. I wasn't right. in school. I wasn't doing anything. But you two sat me down and you were like, you're good at this. Like, you need this. You need to go to school, become a personal trainer, get certified. Yeah, and be a bodybuilder. And all. I mean, we were I like. I mean, Armando was trying to get me to be a bodybuilder. Yeah. I but... was like, I like punching people in the face, bro. I don't want to prance around in board shorts. Get... <laughs> I, can't, I can't do that. But here's the deal. We both saw your potential. We yeah. both were like, you, we have the genetics for it. You have the natural smarts for it. You understand the human body just from fighting. And so, yeah, we, we many times, I remember those conversations saying, this is almost hand-created for you by God to, to walk into. So Yeah, you guys literally sat me down and were like, like you were like, this is exactly the courses you've got to take. Like, this can be your career. And I'm eternally grateful, you know, for that. Because obviously, that's where I am now. I'm a personal trainer running right. his own business. Um, and you're a great personal trainer. I watch all your stuff. You know what you're doing. So. I appreciate it. Um, but yeah, the, just the impact that you had on people, that was that was the biggest reason I wanted to get you on here is just so many people kind of know your story and are inspired by it. And I feel like a lot of them are going to hear this story and really get the inside details of it and what that fight was like and get even more inspired by that. So uh, as we wrap up here, do you have... You got any advice for anybody who is, you know, just looking to get started and is looking for some motivation, some inspiration to just just get started on their fitness journey? You know, the biggest thing that always helps anyone, and this is from watching people and training people, is your circle of friends. You know, if you don't, I, when people say, I don't want to go to the gym, then hang out with friends who want to go to the gym. Yeah. You know, I don't want to work out, then hang out with friends who want to work out. Mm-hmm. You are, you're going to rise to the high, to the level of your highest friend. And so if you want to get stronger, then make sure you're around friends that are way stronger than you, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of what your goal is. You know, if you're poor and you hang around with poor people, you're never going to get rich. You're going to hang around with rich people. If you're weak and you hang around with weak people, you're never going to get strong. If you have no discipline and you hang around with people with no discipline, you're never going to get discipline. It doesn't just happen. Right. You know, the best motivator is people, is relationships. And so that would be my first piece of advice. And then the second one, and this is going to sound crazy and out there, but the one thing that kills motivation more than anything is bitterness, 
in people and unforgiveness. Mm. And it has a it has a way to change our brain chemistry to where we lose focus and motivation because we're always worried about what somebody did to me or we're worried about what somebody thinks about me. Sure. And that kills motivation. That yeah. kills motivation. Yeah. Um, last question. <clears throat> I ask every guest who comes on in, you'll be perfect for this because I know you structure your stuff this way too. What's like, what's your, what's your long-term goal, man? What's like a five-year goal that you got cooking right now? I'm going to own my own gym called Well-Built Body, Soul, and Spirit. Mm-hmm. It's going to be for your physical body, your spirit, and for your soul. And that's a whole other conversation, but it's going to have something for everybody. Yeah. It, in five years, my, my app will have been launched, and I, I would love to sell it. Mm-hmm. And then start a full-fledged media. When I say media company, it's going to be low, small, and agile. So something like Patrick Bet David's Valuetainment, mm. but it's going to have a faith base to it. But it's going to be sports, business, uh, spiritual realm, training, everything. It's just going to be a like your TV channel for those things. Sure. Built around the gym with the clothing company. And then I want to continue to just really travel and speak into people's lives and tell as many people about Jesus as possible. Sure. And not have to worry about money. Yeah. So. I mean, speak it to into existence and it'll happen. I mean, you got it that is. mindset for sure. So, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I appreciate you coming back on again. This is like, what, four hours that we've talked about because right. the last yeah. podcast we weren't able to put out. But I appreciate it, man. It means a lot. I love you, Justin. You're a great, you're, I was going to say boy, but that's long past. I'm not quite a boy anymore. You're a great young man. I'm thrilled about the influence you've had with my boys. I love the fact that when my wife walks in here, she hugs you and loves you like a son because you mean that much to us. So, and I'm very proud of you, man. You've, you are, you are killing it as a trainer, as a young man, um, everything, your relationships. I'm proud to have you as a friend. So it's an honor. It means a lot, especially coming from somebody who's known me when I used to be a knucklehead. So yeah. <laughs> eating all the jelly beans out of my house. So I don't do that anymore. <laughs>